All right, so grab our Bibles. Here we go. It's 1 Corinthians. I believe we are in chapter 3. And we got down to just about verse 16. Does that sound right to everybody? Okay. All right, so as we were finishing up last time, we were talking about an event uh, that theologians call the Bema Seat of Christ. And Bema is just a Greek word, just so you know, that simply means judgment. That's all it means. So as mysterious as it sounds, it just means judgment. So judgment seat of Christ. And we came to the conclusion after looking at Scripture that the Bema Seat was primarily concerned with what group of people? Anybody remember? Christians. So only Christians are experiencing the Bema Seat. It's not... A judgment as to whether or not you're a Christian. It's not a heaven and hell decision going on. Instead, it's the followers of Christ. And a matter of fact, I don't know if we said this real, real clearly last time. Um, it does not even include Old Testament saints. It only includes one specific group of followers. And those would be, anyone remember? Or anyone want to take a good guess at it? Church. Okay, church age. And it would be the church. Only the church is at the Bema seat. Because the church, as it's receiving for what it did in this life, is getting ready for what event? Anybody remember what we said? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Because the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. And the bride is getting adorned at the Bema Seat of Christ. Okay, so those things we talked about, we said we're going to get there. We're going to have maybe a sense of what things are going to retain and stay good. And we may have a sense which ones are going to burn up, but we won't know for sure because the scripture says it's going to be like taking all the things that we did in the name of Jesus, placing them in a fire. And you and I will not know 100% for sure until it's tried by fire, which things burn up because we did them out of our own motives and we did them for our own praise or we did them so that someone else would notice and which things end up being pure and which things come out of that fire. The Bible says gold, silver, precious stone. Okay, as we got ready to end that, we talked about the idea that the Bema Seat of Christ happens during what period of time? Anybody remember? What's, that, what's going on on earth while we're in heaven at the Bema Seat? After the rapture and before the second coming. Okay, so after the rapture, the before the second coming, so during the, during the tribulation. tribulation time, you and I are in heaven, being a seat of Christ, marriage supper of the Lamb. We asked you last week as we were kind of closing up, do we want to talk about that a little more? Do we want to figure out some kind of end time type timelines together for just a little while tonight or not? And we got kind of a mixed review on that. So I'm going to give you one more pass. We can go either way. Uh, tonight, how many in here would say I, I would enjoy maybe figuring out some kind of end time timelines together? How this all works? Raise your hand. How many say forget it? I, I, that would not interest me at all. I'm leaving right now. Okay, good. All right, so we'll see you next week. All right, there you go. Okay. All right. So let's go ahead and spend a few minutes there. Now, here's the thing you need to hear me say out loud, straight up at the beginning. Um, you do not have to agree with me on this, okay? Uh, you, you absolutely have my permission to disagree with me uh, on this. But back to what we said at the very beginning is if you're going to disagree, then, and if you want to talk about it, bring me scripture. Who cares what your Sunday school teacher said? Who cares? If you're going to disagree, and that's fine. And matter of fact, one of the things that helps you and I grow in our faith is when we go back to the Bible and say, man, I, didn't, I never knew that. I, that's not what I've ever understood. I better go study 
and make sure what I think I've understood and what I believed maybe all my life really lines up with Scripture, and I didn't just get the teachings of a man. And if you do that and you come back and say, Lynn, I'm still convinced that you're wrong, that's, we'll sit down, we'll hash. I love talking Bible, so we'll sit down, we'll hash, and, and we'll do that together. But tonight you're going to hear basically kind of where I land on some of this, and it's stuff that theologians have argued for hundreds of years and still have different conclusions on, and we're going to argue it until Jesus comes back, and then we're going to find out I was right, but that's okay. All right, so... Okay, uh, probably, and, and probably the thing that's going to help us put this thing, uh, or get us a good start on it, is figuring out how does the second coming and the rapture work? That really is the most controversial topic of end times. And you actually end up with three basic views about when the rapture happens. Now, here's the deal. If you go home tonight and you try to find the word rapture in the Bible, it is not there. There is no place in the Bible you're going to find the word rapture. Actually, rapture is a Latin word, and it simply means caught up, okay, caught away. And you've heard of like two, uh, two people that were dating were enraptured with each other. They're just caught up in the moment. And that's what the word comes from. And the rapture is talking about that moment, which Scripture describes as the moment when the church is just instantaneously caught up out of this world. I will tell you that I believe, based on Scripture, in a literal rapture, that it is truly going to happen. It's not symbolic, it's not metaphorical, that it physically happens, which simply means this, that there's going to be a moment, no matter where you think it lands historically, when all of a sudden everybody who is called the church is instantaneously taken out of this world. Now that's going to be a strange moment if you stop and think about it, because There could be a Christian and a non-Christian in conversation. And mid-sentence, the Christian disappears. Wham! And now the non-Christian's going... And wouldn't it be really interesting if the Christian in that moment was saying, Hey, you know, there's this thing called the rapture. And I'm going to get caught away. One of the other questions that gets asked a lot about the rapture is, Well, you know, since we're all going to be clothed in heavenly robes in heaven... What would happen like to my clothes here? And I don't know, but that would also be interesting to, you know, all of a sudden just a little clump on the ground and, you know, and so interesting moment. But probably even more interesting than that is what if you're riding in the car with a Christian who's driving? And in that moment, wham, there goes the Christian. And here you are in the passenger seat. Or better yet, what if you've got a Christian pilot? So it's going to be an interesting moment. And my best guess, if it were to happen in the next short while, everybody would be um, popping into their DVD players, Independence Day, and trying to figure out what had just happened uh, on the deal. I I think there's going to be an awful lot of people who try to find a non-religious answer uh, for the rapture. But Scripture talks pretty clearly, we'll talk about that a little bit tonight, that this event happens, that it happens literally. Okay, so the three views are what we call pre-trib. Anybody want to guess when that would happen? Before the trib, okay. Uh, There's a view that it is post-trib. And again, any guesses? Okay. And the final view is mid-trib. 
Okay, pretty, pretty much self-explanatory on those three views. Here's the honest answer, guys. I, I don't even know where you can find any scripture uh, for mid-trib. Mid-trib really came out of two sides that were arguing and somebody said, let's compromise and go to the middle. But that's very seldom a good answer for scripture. And I, I don't know where you can find biblical support for mid-trib. And it really has fallen out of disfavor. Really, the, probably the two arguments that have any room at all are either a pre-trib and a post-trib. And the answer is today, the vast majority of theologians who believe in a literal rapture are going to fall in a pre-trib rapture. But here's, here's the two different views. The pre-trib rapture simply says this. The church age is going on right now. The church age will stop when the rapture occurs. Christians will go up in the air. Jesus will come down, like the Bible says, and meet us in the clouds. And they would say, look, 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 this isn't the second coming because Jesus never comes to earth. He meets the Christians in the clouds and then takes them back to heaven. Okay, so it's not the second coming. This is simply, they would say, the rapture. The post-trib camp would say, no, 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 no. What happens is, this is actually the second coming. Jesus is coming back to earth. And it's at the end of the tribulation. And what happens is, whatever Christians are still alive at the end of the tribulation... They go up into the clouds, do a U-turn, and come back, because Scripture is very clear that Christians come with Jesus in the second coming. So they go up in the clouds, meet Him, and then come back with Jesus right away. I'm going to argue that's an awful lot of traveling just to come back to where you started, but it's okay. Um, it is. It, it, it's a view out there. So let's go through real quickly. I want to show you some passages why I believe that it is absolutely pretty biblical to believe in a pre-tribulational uh, rapture. If I were here tonight, uh, because this is controversial, because there are so many Christians who have argued this with, I would be writing this down. But that's up to you. Okay, so here we go. Reasons why to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. The first one is simply this. I think there are absolutely clear passages in Scripture that say to us, you will not be here during the tribulation period. And one of those is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So it's going to be to the right in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Okay. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Here's what it says. Actually, it's starting in verse 9. It'll help. It says, For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, and you ready for this next phrase, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, here's the problem I have. If you and I live through the tribulation, it seems to me we just went through the wrath. So what does 1 Thessalonians say? He rescued us from the wrath. And I believe you've got an absolutely clear passage saying Christians will not be here for the tribulation period. Okay? Another one is in Revelation chapter 3. So you can turn over there real quickly. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. 
Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 simply says this. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. And what does the book of Revelation talk about for 80% of the book? The tribulation period. And right here in chapter 3, he says, I will rescue you from that hour of trial that comes upon the earth. I think Scripture has some pretty clear passages that seem to say you and I, the church, those of us who are following Christ today, will not experience the tribulation period. Okay, there's a second reason, second argument that I would give for a pre-tribulational rapture, and that is simply descriptive terms uh, for the rapture and for the second coming. So grab your Bibles again and go to 1 Thessalonians. We're doing a lot of Bible turning tonight. Warm up your fingers. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. Okay, and I should probably ask real quick to make sure we haven't just blown past somebody. you, You understand that the second coming is when Jesus physically comes to the earth to basically judge all the world who has not followed him. We call it the battle of Armageddon. And then he comes to set up his kingdom. That's the second coming. And the only thing we're questioning right now is, is the rapture happening that day or does the rapture happen before then? Is that, it was on the same page? We're clear? Okay. I didn't want to lose this on that. Okay. So let's talk for a second. Here is a term talking about the rapture. Here's what it says about the rapture. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse Let's start in verse 1. It says, Now, brothers, about the times and the dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a... What's the next phrase? Thief in the night. Okay? Thief. Compare that to Revelation chapter 1. The passage that I'm pretty convinced talks about the second coming. It's Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Here's what it says. Look, he is, next word, coming, okay, second coming. Look, he is coming with the clouds and ready. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Now, how bad a thief are you? If every eye sees you coming. And my argument is because it's talking about two completely different moments in history. The thief comes in the rapture. The thief is the one, and Jesus is not a thief, but he's using that descriptive term. That when Christians are snatched away, it happens, Scripture says, in a moment, in the blinking of an eye. No one will even know what happened. It'll be like, it'll be like when you walk into your house and you go, oh my goodness, what happened? Versus the second coming says, every eye will see that moment when Jesus comes back at the end. Okay, so completely different descriptive terms. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, let's go to another one. Here's another reason I believe you have a pre-tribulational rapture, and it's simply this. The Bible, I believe, says that the Holy Spirit is not here during the tribulation period. That the Holy Spirit is removed. Okay? So grab your Bibles again and go to Second Thessalonians. How many people have set their Bibles down and just given up on trying to find all these verses? 
You're just going, he'll, he'll get there and read it to me. I'm not going to do that. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Guys, and if you can, I would be underlining these verses. But uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. Actually, let's go back up. Let's go up to, um, let's go to verse 5 just for fun. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. Here's what it says. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back. And if you've read the rest of the passage, you realize he's talking about the man of rebellion. He's talking about Antichrist. And what is holding Antichrist back? And Antichrist is here during what period of time? The tribulation. And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of what the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So you get the one who is holding back Antichrist is taken out of the way before, okay, before Jesus comes back in his coming. Well, here's the big question then. Who's the one who is holding back that day and holding back Antichrist? And Scripture calls him a he. And I think if you just even sit down and process that for a little bit, you, get, you go, well, I mean, I don't think you've got a lot of options. Who would be powerful enough? Who would be the one who could hold back Antichrist until that day? And you go, if it's not Jesus, it's got to be the Holy Spirit, Right? And then it says, and he's going to get taken out of the way. Now, here's an interesting thing, and we're going to put on our thinking caps for just a minute. If the Holy Spirit gets taken out of the way, okay, so the Holy Spirit leaves sometime before the second coming, why would that be important to the church? Okay, so there's a hand. We've got some hands going. Okay, so we'll go here. Um. The Holy Spirit can never leave us once he's in us. So if the Holy Spirit leaves, we have to go somewhere. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 promises that every believer in Christ, every Christian receives what? The Holy Spirit as a seal and a promise guaranteeing that you and I go to heaven. If God took the Holy Spirit away from us, he would be breaking his own promise to us. Now, what are the chances God ever does that? Zero. So if the Holy Spirit is not in the world, then guess what else is not in the world? The church. It's an impossibility because Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the church as a gift for this time. And you cannot be here and be a church believer, church age believer, and the Holy Spirit be gone. Hey, question. On that topic... What happens to the tribulation saints who come to know Jesus while during the tribulation if there's no Holy Spirit? Isn't that a great question? So what happens to the tribulation saints who become believers? And here's the thing, guys. The Bible tells us that during the tribulation period, millions of people believe in Jesus. Now, stop and think about it. It's going to be a remarkable moment because every Christian just left the world. So how does this thing keep going? I mean, who even preaches during this period of time? How do they even know how to be Christians during this period of time? Isn't that a great question? Okay. 
the roles change. There'll be 144,000 Jews that are, are designated to do that. Okay. We'll have the two witnesses. So Scripture that. talks about 144,000 Jews who go out to share the gospel. Okay, and, and like you said, it's almost a role reversal. Isn't that interesting to think that Israel is now leading in evangelism? Won't that be an interesting moment? And you know that Israel's not going to get to that moment without something big happening, right? Before they would get to that. What else is going to happen during that period of time? Anyone remember? Okay, here we go. And also, if we remember, the, the Antichrist will be giving like that number. And they, everyone who will not receive the mark of the beast mm-hmm. will, be, will be killed. And that will uh, kind of put on a mark that they are for Christ. Yeah, scriptures pretty clear. I think it's Revelation. I want to say it's Revelation chapter 5 or Revelation chapter 6 talks about Antichrist giving the mark of the beast and everybody is required to take the mark of the beast. Anyone know what the mark of the beast is in scripture? It's 666. Six, six, six. Six. It's actually a computer code. And I, no, I'm teasing. Uh, you... We don't know what it is. We, it, it, you got to understand 666 in all relativity is probably symbolic um, six has always been the number of man. It is not Henry Kissinger's name spelled backwards, I promise. Okay? Um, but there is some sort of a literal mark. You will not be able to trade without that mark. And here's the part that's interesting, guys. Years ago, and think about thousands of years ago, when Scripture's talking about this mark of the beast, and it says this mark's going to be on your, right, on your right hand, or it's going to be on your forehead. You know, everybody's thinking, well, it must be some sort of a tattoo, but stop and think about what technology is like today. I mean, you can implant little things in your dog that they can tell where your dog is from satellite anywhere. You you, you know they've got the technology right now. You could put your thumb on something and we could use that for a charge card. I mean, stop and think that idea that someone could control the world economy and base things on some sort of mark, chip, whatever that's going to be. You realize we live in a generation where that is just absolutely fathomable. And think about how hard that would have been 2,000 years ago when these words were penned on the deal. Okay, so interesting stuff. Okay, yep. Are you talking about the two witnesses? There's also going to be two witnesses. Scripture tells us they're going to be standing in Jerusalem day and night. So these guys are apparently um, Pentecostals because they don't get tired. Uh, Giving uh, the gospel. But here's the other thing that's going to happen, guys, and this is pretty remarkable. I believe, based on what Scripture seems to say, because the truth is the 144,000 don't seem to show up till a little bit later in the book of Revelation, and neither do the two witnesses show up till a little bit later. Um, what apparently happens, and this is my best guess of it, you and I have shared this story of Jesus. You and I have said to a whole bunch of friends, you need to ask Jesus in your heart to be your Savior. And up until this moment, some of our friends' answer has been, no, you guys are crazy. And there's been a few of us who have been crazy enough to say to our friends, well, there's this thing called the rapture that's coming, and we're going to go, and all that's going to... Imagine if that were to happen tomorrow, how much soul-searching some of our friends would have to do. And how many of them tomorrow, I mean, if the rapture happened tonight, think of how many of them tomorrow would be Christians. Because they say, wow, I, I laughed at my Christian friend. I didn't believe my Christian friend. I believe them now. And I believe right after that rapture, you're going to have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people get on their knees and say, I believe. I believe for the first time in my life and I'll follow Christ. Question. Also, is there any reason to believe that even if the Holy Spirit leaves that 
the word of God is also going to leave? Yeah, it's not. They're going to have the Bible. And here's the interesting part about it. So the answer is we know that thousands, more than thousands, guys, because as a matter of fact, by the time you get to Revelation chapter 7, John looks at the angel that he's with and, and underneath the throne of Jesus are martyrs who've been killed during the tribulation period. And John says, you could not count them. And John asked the angel and says, who are these people? And the angel answers John and says, these are people who in the tribulation believed on Jesus and were killed. So the number of people who will believe during the tribulation and be killed for believing in Jesus, the Bible says you could not count them. Okay, so tons will believe, but they'll prob- most likely pay with their lives for it. So here comes the question. How is this happening without the Holy Spirit? The same way it happened in the Old Testament. Because the reality is, you realize the Holy Spirit is a new thing in this world. You realize the Holy Spirit has only been in this world for 2,000 years, the way that it is right now. And if you go through all the rest of human history, the Holy Spirit was only given to special people on special occasions. They were sometimes called prophets. Sometimes they were judges. Sometimes, not always, a king was given the Holy Spirit. But this moment that you live in where every person who believes on Jesus Christ gets the Holy Spirit, this is a unique moment in history. This is different than it has ever been. But think about this. Think about how much you and I depend on the Spirit to speak to our hearts, to convict us of sin, to help us know the will of God. Imagine going through the worst moment of history, the worst time the world has ever been. Imagine going through a moment when you are killed instantaneously if you name the name of Jesus and you don't have the help of the Holy Spirit. I I don't even want to go for that ride. I don't even want to be here for that moment. And that's why you and I don't want any of our friends to be here for that moment either. Okay? It's not going to be good because they're not going to have at their disposal what even you and I do. Okay? Um, I hope I'm not asking you to repeat something, but I, what is the difference, the earmark differences between the tribulation and the persecution that Chinese churches and Iraqi churches and that kind of thing are going through already in terms yeah. of persecution? Multiply it by like a hundred, and then you'll get close to the tribulation. What's going to happen, and if you read the book of Revelation, and I'll just give you a short synopsis of it. For the first three and a half years of the tribulation, there are going to be judgments happening on the earth. There's going to be famine. There's going to be wars that are going on on the earth. And for the first three and a half years, you're going to be political upheaval and chaos. I mean, we think the economy is bad. You have no idea what it's going to be like because during tribulation it collapses. Matter of fact, Scripture talks about, I can't remember what it is, but it's like three days' wages to buy a loaf of bread. I mean, it just it collapses. In the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the reality is Antichrist is not going to be in power. He'll probably be, be a notable figure, but he will not be in power. In the middle of the tribulation, he's going to step up and say, I can fix this. And the reality is that the judgments that God is going to do the first three and a half years on the earth. And guys, what you need to know is... okay. The tribulation is not about the church. Remember we said that? The tribulation is about who? Anybody remember? Israel. It's about the Jews. And it is seven years before God just kind of pulls the plug that he's saying for one last time to his people, will you finally believe in the Savior? Will you do this? And that seven years is marked by 
ever-increasing spankings. That's the only way I know how to describe it. He says, okay, I'm going to bring famine. Will you believe now? I'm going to bring economic collapse. Will you believe now? I'm going to bring plague and pestilence. Will you believe? It's just ever-increasing spankings to say, Israel, will you finally accept your Savior? This is, your, this is, this is me doing the Hail Mary. You, you, ever, you ever seen the show on TV? I don't watch it, but Intervention, where families have maybe someone they love that's on drugs, and they just go, okay, we've tried everything else. We're just going to sit them down and say, this is your last chance. Okay, that's what the tribulation is. It's God sitting Israel down and saying, this is your last chance chance to believe in a savior do it and it's so it's it's tough love okay the first three and a half years you're going to be able to explain economic chaos famine and just say it's just it's just a bad time it's just it's the world gone a little sideways antichrist is going to step and say i can fix this i i am the world leader he's going to pull everything into a one world economy and everything into a one world religion he will solidify that somewhere toward the middle of the tribulation. The second half of the tribulation, when God starts doing what he's going to do in the second half, it is so supernatural that you can no longer believe it's just economic chaos or just famine. It now becomes, there's like, the Bible talks about creatures that look like scorpions going around stinging people and causing them to be in pain for a year. I mean, it's just unbelievable, horrendous Things that you just can't explain them anymore as being natural effects. And again, it's God turning up the heat on Israel to say, will you come? So take whatever you think is the worst thing going on in this world right now, multiply it by a hundred, and you might come close to what's going to happen in that seven years. It's, it's, it's the worst of the worst on steroids for seven years, and God calling his people back. Okay, so, okay, all right, yep. Hi, is this the same thing that Daniel is talking about in chapters 7 8? Is Daniel 7 and 8 where he's talking about the 69 weeks plus 1? The beast and all and the that beast. and the coming. Honestly, I'd have to go back and take a refresher peek before I could answer that for sure. Daniel surely talks about this moment in time. I just don't remember if it's Daniel chapter 7 off the top of my head. Daniel gives us an incredible picture because... You know what? You're going to remind me, and I'm going to mention this in a minute, okay? Okay, you're going to go, whoop, how does Daniel fit in that in a minute, okay? okay? Because it's very cool how Daniel fits in this in a minute. All right, any other quick questions on the trivial? All right, here we go. Yeah, um, what of Christians that died way before rapture? Um, do they go to heaven, or when rapture happens, do they get taken up? Christians when, who die before the rapture. Right. Okay, let's, let's see if I've got this right. First Corinthians which is what we're in anyways. Chapter 15, starting verse 51. Okay, so here's what it says. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Okay, so that moment that it's talking about, rapture, right here at the beginning of the trib, Jesus comes down, meets us in the clouds, we go up to meet him, and it says, in that moment, those who've died in Christ will go first, 
And then we which are alive and remain are going to be caught up with them to meet him in the clouds. Okay? Now, here's the deal you need to know. That's only the physical bodies of Christians who've died. It's not them. It's just their bodies that go first. How do we know that? Paul said to be absent from the body is to be what? Present, Present with the Lord. And here's the reality, guys. If, if, can I, I'm, not gonna, I'm trying not to be morbid here. Have, have you ever been around a dead body? If you've ever been anywhere near a dead body, here's what you know beyond a shadow of a shadow of a shadow of a doubt. Whoever that person was that you loved, they ain't there anymore. Because the reality is this fleshly thing that you and I have is nothing more than a container. That's all it is. And a matter of fact, all death is is when you take the person who was in the container and remove them, and you and I call that death. But to be absent from the body, Scripture says, is to be present with the Lord instantaneously. But here's the interesting thing. She says, well, then what's the whole rapture and what's all these people coming out of their graves? What's the body? Because one of the things that Scripture promised you and me, one of our inheritances in Christ, is to have a perfect body. Matter of fact, you and I, as best we can tell, are going to have bodies similar to what Adam and Eve had in the garden. Perfect bodies. No zits. Okay? Full hair. Okay? Youthful. How many are going, oh, this, you know, take perfect bodies. You and I will be perfect in the same way that Adam and Eve were perfect before the fall. And part of humanness is God says, look, I'm going to, I'm going to restore what Adam and Eve gave away. I will give back to you at the end. And part of that is this perfect physical existence. So here's the cool part about it, guys. You and I are going to have the best of both worlds. You and I apparently are going to be able to go to heaven or move around in this universe in the same way that angels move around, and yet you and I are going to have something angels don't have, and that's physical presence. It's an interesting moment. It's a neat promise in Scripture. Okay? So the answer simply is this. Everyone that you know and love who has died in Christ is already in the presence of Jesus already. Someday they get their body back in perfect form. That day is called the rapture. Okay? All right. Speaking um, about the tribulation and how those people will have a second chance, what about ones that have already passed away and don't know the Lord? Yeah. Scripture says this, and I wish I could give you a second chance. I can't. Okay? And I just, I just need to say this out loud. Please don't be mad at me. I didn't. It's not my idea. It's Scripture. Scripture simply says this. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Die judgment. No second chances. No purgatories. No oops, I want to do over. No reincarnations. It is appointed unto a man once to die. Next appointment, judgment. Okay? It's just how it is. The reality is the people in the tribulation aren't getting so much a second chance. Um, And of course they haven't died, so that's why they haven't run that course. The truth is they're getting a wallop of a spanking. It's probably a better way of looking at it. It's not really a second chance that nobody else got. Yep. Lynn, a question. Obviously, Satan is aware of what's going to happen. Hmm. Why is 
What measures is he taking, or where is there Why is he playing along? Why is he playing along? Is yeah. there any scripture referencing this, or what? what so think that? about because that's actually an intriguing question when you come to end times. If if you and I are sitting in Bible study night and we're telling each other what's going to happen next, why is Satan going to play along? I mean, why is he going to go with it? Why doesn't he just go? Oh, oh no no. You know, he said I was going to have an antichrist. I'm just not going to have an antichrist. You know, I'm just not gonna. Why, why why play along? And here, here's my best answer, and I just have to tell you right now what you're hearing from me is a human guess, okay? My best human guess, I don't think Satan knows this. I, I think when you and I sit in Bible study talking about this, he's not allowed to listen. I don't know if God says you get to leave the room. I don't know if it goes, nah, 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 in his, I don't know. But here's, here's what I do know. Our enemy, Satan, is unbelievably intelligent. He is unbelievably smart. Matter of fact, he is so smart, so powerful, that he literally looked God in the eyes and said, I think I'm smarter than you, and I think I can take you. Now, here's the deal. That either makes you an idiot or really, really smart and really, really powerful, that you stood in the presence of God and said, I think I'm smarter than you, and I think I can take you. The answer, Scripture tells us, is the latter. He is really, really smart, and he is really, really powerful, which is why whenever you and I sit here and go, oh, I'm going to outthink Satan. I know Satan's telling me to do this, but I'm going to do it, and I'm going to outsmart. You are dumb, because he is so much smarter than you and so much more powerful than you. You will never win that game it's like a five-year-old playing chess with Bobby Fischer. You are not going to win that game. Okay? So my best guess, now you're back to my guesses, my best guess is he doesn't get to hear this conversation. I think when he opens Scripture and it has end-time prophecy, I think it burns his eyes. I don't think he's allowed to know what you and I are talking about tonight. Because if I was Satan, I wouldn't do it, would you? No. Okay. I had two things. One thing is... I always thought of Satan as the king of unbelievers or evolutionists. And it's like an evolutionist kind of knows in his heart that it's like, okay, well, I can't figure all this stuff out, so I'm just going to make believe. So I think Satan knows. He just thinks he's smarter than what the truth is. So he thinks that he'd be able to beat it no matter what. But Maybe. I mean, you know, maybe he's that arrogant that he says, I'll play along to the end and then I'm going to do a sneak yeah. You know, steal home or something? I don't know, but... And uh, the other thing is, um, Revelation talks about um, that Christian gets uh, the tree of life again. A Christian that's what? Christian gets to, gets to eat from the tree of life again. You and I, because we know Jesus Christ and because we're Christians, we end up with eternal life. And if you remember the tree of life, and whether it's going to be there physically or not, and possibly it's going to be there physically, the answer is you and I have already been promised all that. We've already been promised eternal life, and we've been promised that everything will be revealed to us. So all these moments you and I sit in life right now, and we go, God, that was, why did you, I mean, that just looked like the stupidest decision you could have ever made. You realize God's going to reveal that, and you and I are going to go, oh my goodness. You were five moves ahead of me, God. You saw things, and, under, and, and you and I are going to see life with absolute clarity, which is what the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good, that's what it was, right? So, yeah, you and I have all that given to us at the end. Okay, well, we're getting lots of questions. Okay, so up over there, okay. Yeah, Pastor Lynn, um, I'm not sure what verse it is, but there's a verse in the Bible that 
I think the demons responded something like, uh, we know who you are. Have you come to torment us before the time or something like that? Is that any reference to... It's in reference to the. It's it's surely in reference to the end times. And what you're talking about right there is when Jesus is doing ministry on earth, and there is the maniac of Gadara, and Jesus comes to cast the demons out. Scripture says, and they were legion. There were thousands of them, and they say to Jesus, "Why have you come? It's not time yet. Okay, why are you tormenting us now?" And um, they knew it wasn't the end times, and so that's what they were referring to. Yeah. Because you get at the end times, we'll get we'll get there if we in, in a few minutes. You get at the end times, Satan loses, and he get, and him and his demons get locked away. Um, what about the children? Um, when the rapture, do they do they all leave as well? That's a great question. Here is my best guess, and that's all I can give you because Scripture is not clear on this. I think you're going to probably deal with what I would call the age of accountability again. I think children who are children of believers. I can't speak for the children of non-believers. I don't know for sure. I do know this. Scripture says, Woe to the woman who gives suck in those days, or suckle in those days. And there was a woman who has an infant. My best guess is, is because she'll be caring and, and, and she'll be brokenhearted for what's happening and her baby is having to go through. But my best guess is that the children of believers who have not come to the place where they could have made a personal decision themselves, they just don't have that understanding yet, we call it age of accountability, would probably be caught up in the rapture, that they would be taken. They wouldn't be forced to be orphans. And I just, does that, it doesn't even make sense to me that God would treat the children of believers that way. So I just, I have to believe, and I think I can believe with pretty good confidence that the Lord that we know would say, look, you're the infant child or you're a four-year-old child of a believing, come on, you know, we're going to, we're going to take you and do this. I think he does, to be honest with you guys, in my best understanding, he does the same thing for a three-year-old who dies. A three-year-old who dies, that three-year-old could have never figured out Jesus. They couldn't have understood how to have it. I believe it's an age of accountability and God takes them to heaven. you can't condemn a child who couldn't believe. Okay. All right. So let's, let's put, how much time do we have? We're out of time. We didn't even get the rapture into. All right. All right. So we're out of time. Um, I, I will probably take like 10 minutes next time and try to get the rapture in place for everybody on the deal. Okay. Let's pray real quick and uh, we'll be done. Dear Lord Jesus, we simply come before you, and uh, we're just going to say out loud, we get it, we acknowledge that we don't know 100% for sure exactly how this works. Theologians have been arguing for years and years, but here's what we do know. You said that we were supposed to wait, and we were to live lives as if you could come back at any moment. And that when we began to understand that, when we began to catch on to this idea that our Savior could come back any instant and all of history could be changed and this thing called the rapture could be happening, we would live differently. We would, we would live purer, holier, more sold-out lives because our Jesus could come back at any moment and we'd want to be ready for that moment. So God, at the end of the day, Make us that type of believer. Make us Christians who every morning wake up and say, this could be the day that my Jesus comes back. I want him to find me doing the right thing. I want him to find me behaving and living in a way that honors Jesus. 
And so this day belongs to my Savior because he may come today. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you guys. Thanks for taking an evening to study the Scriptures.